I've rambled enough. No, you really haven't. (laughs) (laughs) This episode is sponsored by Frontend Masters. They have a terrific lineup of live courses you can attend either online or in person. They also have a terrific backlog of courses you can watch, including JavaScript Good Parts, Build Web Applications with Node.js, AngularJS In-Depth, and Advanced JavaScript. You can go check them out at frontendmasters.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 232 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have AJ O'Neill. Yo, 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 coming at you live from South Provo. Amy Knight. Hello. Joe Eames. Hey, everybody. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. A uh, quick shout out about Angular Remote Conf, and actually Angular Remote Conf will be over by the time this comes out. React Remote Conf, uh, go check that one out. Um, we also have a special guest this week, and that is Mark Nadal. Hello, thanks for having me on the show. No problem. You want to give us a brief introduction to who you are? Yeah. So I'm the author and founder behind Gun. It's a database that the quickest way to summarize is like an open source Firebase. But it could do quite a bit more, and that's kind of what we'll explore a little bit through the talk. But my background is kind of what I want to start with, which is I was originally working on a collaborative web design tool, and in the middle of the night, everything crashed and blew up. And I was wondering, why on earth is my server crashing? So I quickly had to scramble and figure out what was wrong. My Node.js app server was fine, my front-end code was fine, the CDN was fine, but the database was down. And when the database was down, it was the bottleneck to all the rest of my problems. So since then, I've been in agony and pain and frustration, and I decided to try and solve it myself. So that's how I got into databases. And then we launched Gun, and I've raised a seed round for it, and it then gets about 2,000-ish downloads on NPM every month. So that's a quick summary. So if you raised a seed round, I, I got to get to the business first, I guess. Um, is there some money-making uh, mechanism behind Gun then, or is it just funded, open-source, awesome? It's completely open-source and fun and awesome, if that's how you want to classify it. Of course, we have support um, plans, the standard route that like MongoDB or MySQL goes. But what differentiates us is we're um, MIT Apache 2 Zlib license. So you can literally do anything you want with our software. So it's extraordinarily open source uh, to a fault. And um, we then hope people will want to pay us for our services. Very nice. So, do you want to? You could also try. Uh, you could try making money through patent trolling as well. If you, you know, the support doesn't work out. That's my favorite game. Just Actually, <laughs> the Apache Two license doesn't support patent trolling. Oh. Somebody here has actually read the license that people use. Oh my goodness. <laughs> well, if it's MIT license, then it basically says you can do whatever you want with it, commercial or not. And patent troll. But with the Apache 2, you cannot. So how does it work when we have a triple license? I was wondering about that. People just pick the one that they want. They they decide under which license they want to use it. So somebody that wants to use it in GPL code will use it with either the Zlib or the MIT license. But somebody that wants to use it in a commercial product would probably use it under the Apache 2 license so that you can't trademark or not trademark patent troll them. You can still trademark troll even with the Apache 2. That's the good thing. You can always trademark troll. 
there's no license that can <laughs> help yeah. you there. So, so Mark, I guess my question is, is why in the world does the world need another database engine? Yeah. So going back to the story of how my server crashed, um, first off, most of the mainstream databases out there are what's called master-slave. They're centralized. So if your master database goes down, everything topples with it. Now, Hold on, hold on, hold on. Does that include the databases that we all are used to and know and love like uh, as MongoDB work that way? Yes. So uh, Postgres, MongoDB, MySQL, there's very few that are not that way. So for instance, Cassandra, React, and Couch, um, maybe I think Orient as well. Those are uh, more uh, distributed databases. And well, so you have to be careful with the word distributed because distributed is a more general category than decentralized. So peer-to-peer -peer decentralized is referencing things specifically like BitTorrent. It's very, very hard to take down BitTorrent for good or for bad. Distributed doesn't necessarily mean it has to be peer-to-peer. -peer. It might be distributed across many machines, but it still is potentially centralized. So I think RethinkDB, for instance, is distributed but not decentralized. Distributed systems are are less fault tolerant than decentralized systems. And um, if I'm speaking too much jargon, I'd always love to pull back and talk about these things from a more general scale because part of what we're trying to do with GUN, um, another interesting frightening fact is that it's written in JavaScript. So cue everybody laughing, no! right? <laughs> um, well, the good news is Jamison's not here today, so you can use all the jargon you want and no one will stop you unless it's I'll Amy. stop you. No, part part of the <laughs> movement that we're trying to establish is that if you are developing anything or you're a newbie, right, when you hit a bug or you're trying to debug something, if there's black magic in your system, you're just not going to be able to figure out what's going on. So I think it's really important for people to understand everything that's happening in their system from the top to the bottom. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean being an expert in the full stack. But it means having clear, transparent, composable pieces that you can put together. So um, Gun does not try and be, uh, you know, a magic monolith that solves anything and everything. It instead takes the Node.js or Unix philosophy. It has one job that is responsible at, and that piece that it focuses on is designed such that you can um, compose that into many larger pieces, that it can be emergent. So a quick example with the decentralized versus distributed, you can create um, federated systems on top of peer-to-peer -peer systems. You can then build centralized systems on top of federated systems. But if you start with a centralized system, you can't go back down. So at the core, at the bottom, peer-to-peer -peer systems are more composable or more emergent. And then when you put those pieces together, it's up to the application developer to know what they're trying to do versus the database. Um, so I'll, okay, so I'll there's there. like 10 terms that I think might be good to define. Yes. So could we just start off with database? Yeah, yes. and I have some questions too then after we go over the terms. Sure. So a database you can almost think of as simply being a variable. Okay, let's start with that. In JavaScript, you do var. Foo equals blah, right? Blah is a value that is stored into that variable. That's data. Now, generally speaking, people think of databases as being much more than just that. They think of it as being collections of 
variables, um, sets of data. And they also typically think of the data persisting to disk versus just being in memory and uh, transient or ephemeral. So a database I'd like to generically define as something that stores data so you can retrieve it later in the future. I think um, Joe was being a smart aleck. Actually, though, this is actually great. Like, I love this definition, and I'm really glad that even I was being a little bit of a smart aleck, but I'm actually really <laughs> proud of you because this is actually a great definition because we live in a day and age when we're no longer dealing with just relational databases, right? Uh, where everybody says, oh, you want to understand a database? Well, you know Excel? Just imagine, you know, that with multiple tabs, and that's a database, and there's some, you know, potentially correlation between the tabs. Right, and we don't live in a day and age like that anymore. There has to be a more generic definition. This has actually been great. I really like this. Yeah. Right. One, one other so, thing to keep in mind, though, is if you're thinking about it as a variable or collection of variables, it's generally a global system, and it goes, in fact, beyond global. If you're thinking about like a, a web system or something, where it actually spans across all the apps that connect to that database, so it's super yes. global. Good point. So. In that global setting, you can almost think of a key value database like Redis. Those are primarily in memory, but they will occasionally flush to disk. So Gun at its core is in memory, but it has adapters that are built into it by default to flush to disk. So that way it does store long-term the data. Um, but then, yes, talking about the global scale, that those keys are accessible by many different machines. Of course, how you deal with security authorization is a separate matter, but many people can access that data. And that's a great point to bring up another fancy word uh, called concurrency. And concurrency is a really nasty problem in computer science when you are dealing with multiple machines reading and writing to the same thing. Um, so much that there's the cliche quote um, that there's two hard things in computer science cache and validation and naming things, and then the joke um, off by one errors, since they said two things, but there's actually three things off by one. <laughs> um, it, it's pretty cliche. I'm sure most people have heard that before. But cache and validation winds up being the core of concurrency control, because if multiple people are editing the same thing at the same time, right? They have that thing on their computer currently. That's their local cache of it. If they're editing it and somebody else has edited it, the other person's edit on another machine needs to invalidate or update the cache of the other machines. So that's just a very general view of uh, concurrency. Um, you can think about it as a bunch of chefs at a restaurant trying to cook the same meal while communicating to each other. So the one thing that I wanted to make sure that we went over before we went much further, can you explain the architecture for traditional databases that most people are probably used to, like Postgres or MongoDB? So those you had said are like master-slave architecture, but uh, GUN is master-master architecture. Can you talk about the differences there? And yes. can you, while, while talking about that, also talk about like federated versus non-federated sure. as well? So GUN is real-time, offline-first, decentralized, and a graph database. Now I'm going to use those four terms, and I'm going to explain them and compare them to other databases. So for instance, MySQL is centralized, not decentralized. Um, so the words master-master or master-list or multi-master or peer-to-peer -peer or decentralized and to some degree distributed all kind of mean the same thing, okay? So there's lots of words there. Um, compared to centralized 
or um, master-slave. I, I think there's fewer terms around that jargon. So MongoDB, Postgres, MySQL, most mainstream databases that people are using are centralized or master databases. Gun is not. It is peer-to-peer. The big difference with those things is how you deal with fault tolerance. So a master system okay, is more likely to fail, but a master list or a decentralized system, kind of like BitTorrent, is much more difficult to fail. It is fault tolerant. However, when you have peer-to-peer systems, when you have master, master, multi-master, decentralized, distrib- I'm probably confusing people just by repeating the words. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. When, when you, <laughs> when you I, I'll just classify them as decentralized compared to centralized. When you have decentralized <laughs> systems, um, they also might have um, slightly out of date uh, data as they're syncing between them. It Einstein has told us in physics it takes time for information to travel. So when two machines are trying to talk to each other, um, there's going to be some latency behind them. This is, you might have heard the more jargon in here, the famous cap theorem that people talk about. So a master... I was going to say, yes, let's get into that. Yeah. So yeah, we've all heard about it and nobody understands it except for maybe you. <laughs> so... Um, Maybe I should just use concrete examples of Mongo and um, MySQL versus the decentralized. So Mongo and Postgres are more like, well, <laughs> I'm not going to include Mongo in that list. MySQL should be what's called strongly consistent. That's the C in cap. Um, and the reason why it could be strongly consistent is because it's centralized. All the data is stored in one place. So it can give you a kind of the correct view of data at any given time. However, because all the data is in one place, uh, don't put all your eggs in the same basket. If that basket blows up, it's also not as fault tolerant compared to um, Gun or these other databases that are decentralized. But the trade-off that you get is that if you want fault tolerance, data is going to take um, a little bit more time to sync. So that's the next jargon word I want to move on to, which is Gun is real-time versus most other databases as being uh, a polling-based architecture. So MongoDB, Postgres, MySQL, you all have to ask them questions for getting data. Like, hey, do you have any new updates? Hey, do you have any new updates? Hey, do you have any new updates? That gets annoying really fast. While things like Firebase and Gun are real-time, they push the data out to you. This piece makes it really, really nice because before we just talked about like, oh, well, what if you know your data is out of sync or something like that? What if what if the data has been edited on another machine? What if you have a stale copy of the data? If you have a real-time system, okay, you're going to get those updates as fast as possible, as fast as the network can give you those updates. So it mitigates a lot of the problems, not completely, not mathematically, but it mitigates um, a lot of the end-user problems. So that's why kind of Firebase took off and became this phenomenal success because people were like, well, duh, yeah, your database should be real time. Like that just makes sense, right? So there's not too many databases that have that yet. Um, so Gun, that's why I introduces kind of think of it as being an open source uh, Firebase. All right, two more terms left. Um, the right. next, yeah, you guys want to interrupt? 
I was going to say, RethinkDB is also in that category. Kind of. of. In real time. So RethinkDB added that on top. Yes, they do have a push-based system, but the core architecture to their system, from my understanding, at least my discussions with Mike and others, is that the, the core system is not. Um, that's a layer that they've added on top. Now, uh, they, they well, because I love them, I want the world to know that they are real time because that is what <laughs> one of their focuses is. So despite how they may have evolved, they are a real time database now. Yes. Just, just so people know, because I love them too. CouchDB too, or no? So CouchDB no. is, well, no, that's incorrect because CouchDB with Pouch, which is the front end version yeah, of Couch, that's what has a syncing method. So you can also get Couch, which is one of those um, multi-master or decentralized databases out there. Um, one of the few that actually has offline first support um, to, to sync, and that syncing is a type of updating to it. Uh, but if right. I understand correctly, Couch is still in the model that you ask for data. They have not yet added the real-time features, correct? It, like you don't subscribe to data on Couch. Like you subscribe to data on Firebase and on RethinkDB and on Gun. I haven't used Couch enough. I Last time I used Couch was back in 2011 for one week. I was writing a MongoDB driver for node.js and um one of my friends said no couch is the way so i switched over to couch and then i realized i didn't have dynamic queries yet so i they probably do now because this was 2011 a long time ago so i i haven't seen couch since then however since mongodb blew up on me <laughs> i realized my friend was right because couch has that fault tolerant model to it while mongodb doesn't um so it I, kind of does now with sharding and replication, but those are excuses for fault tolerance, not really um, actual fault tolerance from um, at least a more mathy perspective. But because then you have to coordinate really complicated algorithms like Paxos or Raft. And um, there's this brilliant guy out there, Kyle Kingsbury, goes by A for Online, who writes all these really fascinating articles about how he just destroys databases. He does this um, as his job. And um, pretty much every single implementation of Raft and Paxos are <laughs> were not correct, except for like one or two. And even if you use the one that is correct, um, you still have to set up your entire infrastructure and um, DevOps to to coordinate for all those things in the first place. And you can easily screw that up. So anyways, I've probably lost a bajillion people in the audience because we're talking about all this really ethereal stuff. I want to bring it back down to um, just something that this was stuff I did not want to deal with. This is stuff that I think is stupid and dumb and is in this elitist academic jargon. And it doesn't have to be. The concepts aren't actually that difficult if you sit down and think about them. And I hope that's kind of what we get to explore in this chat. Um, that if somebody's out there getting lost, um, at some point we're going to bring this back to front-end development because JavaScript, uh, because Gun is written in JavaScript. You can use it there like Firebase. But uh, it's just to explain um, the architecture. So the last two things. Um, Gun is offline first. And it being offline first allows uh, an end user on your app to be going through the subway or someplace that they're disconnected, they can make edits 
it'll save locally to their phone or whatever they're using. And then when they come back online, those updates will sync. Okay. So you don't have to worry. This is really nice with kind of the mobile first thinking. Um, and only from my understanding, pouch does that. Although I think Firebase just recently added um, a feature for it. Um, so there's starting to be this big divide, as you can see from like Firebase and gun compared to most other databases like Postgres, MongoDB. And then there's kind of these middle tier people like, uh, couch and rethink okay last category and this i think is really exciting is gun is a graph database there's basically only neo4j out there on the market that's usable for web developers that is a graph database graphs are really cool because they let you do documents and tables and relations and key value so it so you slap all these things together and and you can do that with graphs so to summarize, I had problems with certain databases. I liked features from certain other databases. No database out there had the collection of all the features that I wanted and was also open source and very, very, um, well, a lot of them use like AGPL or GPL and stuff like that. So GUN, and I'm biased, of course, is to me the holy grail of databases because it's all the best features you could possibly imagine um, slapped together into a single database and then allows you to use it from the browser with JavaScript. Real time, so you get data sync like Firebase. It's graphs. You can do key value, document relational, whatever, um, offline first and um, fully peer-to-peer. -peer. So I've rambled enough. No, you really haven't. <laughs> like this is all super fascinating right so i want to a thought occurred to me and this is maybe a bit of a divergence from divergence from where we've been talking but um firebase you know you, you talked a lot about firebase uh, i just mentioned it quite a bit so i love firebase i've done a lot with firebase um really like it even taught some courses on it but that being said, when it comes to like working with Firebase, there's certainly a few things that are you know fairly difficult. Like you get to a pretty close or pretty quickly, you'll get to a place where okay, I've got to write the same piece of data in multiple times in multiple places. Uh, Firebase doesn't have the concept of a join, which some of the NoSQL databases do, uh, even ones that have a fairly similar setup to and structure to Firebase, they still support the concept of joins. Personally, I don't have an opinion as to which ones it's better to have joins or to not have joins, but it does add a little bit of uh, friction as you're putting things together. So does Gun feel the same way as Firebase when you're writing it? It's like the amount of architecture you have to do as a developer is definitely a big step up from, say, the whole, oh, I'm just building a relational database and it's you know super easy and second nature to segment my data out, clean it up, make it dry, and boom, I'm good. This is actually a perfect way to introduce graphs because I realized I just threw out the word. I didn't really explain it. So thank you for that. Yeah, it is a huge pain when you're dealing with databases that can't store circular references or, or relations. So if you have a blog post and there's the author to the blog post, you wind up having to store that as its own string rather than an actual you know, pointer to the actual uh, author. So this is where it gets really, really exciting because uh, graphs allow you to do that. And in JavaScript, if you've ever had a JavaScript object that has circular references in it, I mean, how many times has, 
have people in this um, podcast ever gotten json.stringify um, invalid uh, circular reference error? Have you guys ever sure. done that error? Okay. Yeah. Super yep. annoying, right? Because JavaScript by itself, just a regular object, can store circular references, relations, in all sorts of different orders. You can, you can have something that's infinitely deep. Um, we as front-end developers are used to that. That is convenient. It's nice, especially when you're dealing with like a blog post with an author and then an author who has a list of blog posts that go back to that very blog post or a social network where you have a person, they have a girlfriend or a spouse or something, and the spouse then has a spouse that points back to that same person. Those are all circular references. Reality is full of these things. You would as, never model those things in a database. <laughs> and, and you're yeah. saying that, that that my spouse, her spouse is me? Yes. <laughs> That's not true in your case, Chuck. <laughs> Ouch. Um, so, Gun actually, <laughs> actually allows you to take those JavaScript objects with all those circular references and just save it. And then it's saved. And it will sync across all your computers. And you can then read that data back out, circular references and all. You don't have to worry about the friction with Firebase or MongoDB, or I'm going to even say with relational databases, because you have to set up the stinking join tables or the join, whatever. I, I don't use them enough, but I just know it's a pain because you have to have all like the foreign index keys and junk like that that you have to remember to do. But with a regular old JavaScript object, it's all done for you already. You don't have to think about that. And Gun behaves the same way. You store something that has circular references, it gets stored and synced to other machines. You want to read that stuff back out, you read it back out and you get the data back. Um, so that's why I find it is particularly exciting. Um, I love graphs because, yeah, they get away, they get rid of this friction, like you were saying. Um, and the last remark on this is most databases out there force you to have to architect everything that you're doing, schematize everything you're doing to put it into the constraint of the database itself. So you have to do the dirty work. But why? Like if all these database systems, if there's so many databases out there with tons of elitist um, people who know all sorts of jargony things, how come they haven't invented something yet that allows us to just put data in and get data back out? Like, is that too hard of a request? So I think the database should bend to your application's demands rather than you having to bend to the database's demands. I want to put front-end developers and back-end developers back in power with what they're doing, not as being the slave to their database. Well, one thing that I've seen, though, is that um, systems that have opinions or force you into certain paradigms, when your system or when your assumptions or your problem set match up nicely with those situations, all of a sudden you don't have to make very many decisions. And that's actually really nice about some of these systems. And so when people say, well, you should be able to bend it to your will and make it do anything you want, I always hesitate a little bit to you know be all gung-ho about it because in a lot of cases I, well okay whatever oh, okay, yeah. Okay. but um you know i hesitate a little bit to get excited about 
that capability just because then it feels like more work to me because now I have to make decisions on how I want to think about this problem with this system instead of just using it as designed and being done with it. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a thousand tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and LA bid on JavaScript developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average JavaScript developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with a company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the Ruby Rogues link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash JavaScript Jabber. That is an excellent point. So there's a couple things to this. Uh, first is going back to the point of emergence, like NPM, Node.js, uh, Unix philosophy. If you have a powerful and flexible system underneath, it's very, very easy to create a wrapper on top that forces people to use that constraint. So that's kind of the direction we're going to go with Gun. that, yeah, um, maybe you don't know what you want and you want some framework-y assumptions, but you should be able to use a tool that has that built for you, and that tool should be able to build on a more solid foundation that um, creates that. So um, just because the lower-level system is more emergent or more flexible doesn't mean you can't put constraints on it. But those constraints are then up to the framework developers who are making those good decisions. The second point is it oftentimes is hard to know what the good decisions is to make in the first place, right? So if you're just starting an app, um, you probably don't know what you're going to do with it. Um, or you might not be experienced enough to know which framework with what assumptions you should use. So I think it's still very, very important to be able to start at a rapid prototyping level and build things up. But then once you understand what you're doing, right, you should never push code into production without having a forcible schema around it. Um, because that schema is going to protect you from a lot of things. But those are pieces that come later and are built on top, not necessarily the underlying system. So I absolutely agree with you. You have a great point. Um, and I don't want to deflect from it because it is important. However, it either requires experience or it requires knowing what you're doing in the first place, which I guess is experience. Um, and it or I should say, it either requires experience or requires um, a, a system underneath to build the constraints on top of. So, Chuck, I want to, I, I want to tell you a little something that I want to, I want to know if this helps you understand why this is interesting. So, in in a traditional SQL database, you have tables that are built. And the way that they're optimized is around the way that a traditional rotational disk system works. And this, one of the stories behind RethinkDB is actually that they were rethinking a database as if, you know, rotational disk wasn't what we're building a database on. And that's kind of how they got their start. And so GUN is built in a similar way where it's not built with the concept of this data has to go on a rotational drive. It's built with the concept that this data has to be stored in some permanent medium. So whereas a SQL table uh, has all of these IDs and it has uh, indexes and the tables join together looking at, um, you know, can I disk seek ahead this number of bytes knowing that each row in the table is approximately this long and then find the column 
that you know is represented on disk as having that data it's all about this kind of disk seeking action gun is built with the idea that the database actually operates primarily in memory so it's primarily just like redis works it's primarily operating out of a cache and every time you retrieve an object it's doing all of those joins and it's not as optimized for a disk system a rotational disk system as sql is but it is optimized for a high, highly available system that has multiple nodes in it. Does that make do, sense? And Mark, am I correct? Uh, yes, although I do want to um, comment about optimizations or performance. Uh, that is stuff we've been working really, really hard on this next release. And and I'd like to proudly state that um, the upcoming release should be able to do about uh, 30 million reads per second and then over 6,000 writes per second in a browser okay is compared to a lot of other uh, databases like redis um i think redis's read for the same type of tests is, uh, gun is about 50 times faster than redis for the same type of test um, that i looked up and then i think cassandra writes at about 6,000 um writes per second so performance Sure, it's not optimized for disk and spinning disk head that's true but most of your performance and optimization comes from it being in memory because um, right. I.O. is not particularly interesting. And and to that, yeah. I want to bring up something else for people to kind of wrap their heads around why this is cool. So you might think, well, here's you know Mark and a fairly small team of developers that are creating their own database that is supposed to rival like these huge databases that have lots of developers. So you know, why would Gun be interesting if other people that are probably smarter, that have more resources, are solving this problem in a different way? And I think the most unique thing about Gun is that I, I see it more as a protocol than as a database, because as a plugin architecture, so that you can choose different types of storage, like you can choose to store in Amazon uh, uh, back storage, or you could choose uh, local disk storage, or you could choose different types of storage as the the permanence backend. But the the gun itself is all in process. It's meant to be used with JavaScript applications. And is there still the Android port, the Java port, in happening, or is or is that on pause for now? I think the person who was working on it um, wound up getting a job and stopped contributing to the open source community. <laughs> okay, but the the point is. The protocol that Gun defines is something that could be implemented in any language. And because Gun is in the language, you don't have the context switch latency of having to make an HTTP call or a socket request, et cetera, et cetera. The only time that needs to happen is when it's communicating between nodes on the network or between processes in the cluster. I think this is a really, really good point. Yeah, the, the core of Gun is more how do we sync data? And that's pretty much just a protocol. I've implemented it first in JavaScript because it's the easiest from my perspective to use. But um, it AJ really nails it on the head there. So thank you for that, AJ. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's really the protocol and the API that I see as being what makes Gun special and why it's something that can be implemented by a small team and can still be really effective. So I want to use that as kind of a launch vehicle to encourage others that, yeah, there are lots of really smart people out there solving really hard problems. But oftentimes it takes a newcomer 
to come into the industry, into the field with a fresh perspective. So if you are a newbie and you're learning stuff and you're having problems, maybe the reason why you're having problems isn't because you're stupid, but because everybody else is doing wrong. Now, I'm I'm not saying everybody else is wrong, but you have unique insights when you encounter struggles. If you capitalize on those unique insights and try to build those things out, like I did, I went from being a basement dwelling, you know, just random JavaScript developer. I mean, I, I had no interesting backgrounds or credentials um, to now having um, investment in our company. I've been giving talks around the world and we have, we've hit like the top 4% of NPM's ecosystem. So I want to encourage others. I'm not necessarily that smart elite person either. Uh, Maybe I sound like it after rambling off a bunch of words and jargon, but I really want to encourage people that they should tackle ambitious problems and solve them with an outsider mentality. Because sometimes, not always, you come up with something different, unique, and that's a lot more viable. Or sometimes you reinvent the wheel, but hey, at least now you have a mastership, a craftsmanship of understanding how wheels work. And that's valuable in and of itself. Okay. But sometimes with that outsider perspective, you also create something wonderful and new. So I just want to encourage everybody out there, don't let um, the elite or the jargon or um, haters out there get you down because part of the struggles you might be having is that you actually have a good insight. You have an outsider's perspective and you should capitalize on that. Here, here. So on that um, subject, there's also this idea that it's really important to to dismantle the elitism that's in any particular industry and to try and democratize that information or that talent or that skill set to the masses. We're only able to make progress as humanity if we're willing to, to take the stab ourselves, right? To make something so open source, so free, so um, vulnerable that other people are able to get value from it. And that's kind of the message and the movement I really want to push. That if we let um, a bunch of black magic and academic jargon confuse us, part of the reason why there's all these jargon words is because the people who are building and creating the systems themselves don't have a complete formal understanding of it. Okay. I mean, even the cap theorem, which has been mathematically proven, has been critiqued for having nuances to it. Okay. So part of the reason if you ever hear anybody in any industry, okay, using a bunch of buzzwords and jargon and and stuff like that, it's probably because they're trying to cover their own butts. Okay, they're probably not able to explain the systems themselves and they want to mask or hide the fact that there are certain flaws or bugs that they don't yet understand. And that's, again, why I'm going to shout out to Kyle Kingsbury or AFER um, because he came into the database industry and actually looked at what people said all the black mod magic that they claimed, and then tested it and found out most of the vendors didn't stand up to their own claims. So just have that as a warning notice. When you hear jargon all over the place, that's a red flag that the person themselves potentially doesn't even know what on earth is going on. So 
That's why I think it's really important to dismantle the elitism and democratize the masses and why open source becomes so critical because the more people that are there to freely look at the problem, the more collaboration we have, then the faster and better problems will be solved rather than locking everything into a jail cell for a few, quote, smart people to solve. Everybody can be smart if they try hard enough. You know, it's a good thing the whole world doesn't work that way. I mean, our politicians don't speak in buzzwords and sound bites. <laughs> oh my, this just went political, which I think brings up another interesting factor, the the politics of the web, right? So a um, couple interesting things is that m- most companies out there that are web companies are based on open source foundations, okay? I mean, look at how widespread WordPress and jQuery are. The web, the World Wide Web, is built on open source ideas and built on decentralized ideas. Let's look at the politics around JavaScript lately. ES 2016, I don't really want to go into it because people are very opinionated. But even the question of whether JavaScript is a joke, right? And we need to keep on building it. But look at how many beautiful, grand things have been built upon a seemingly weird, strange, broken, distributed system. The foundation of the web is beautiful, even if it looks kind of ugly. And when people are open about revealing their secrets, like people have done with WordPress and jQuery, entire ecosystems of the entire internet flourish. Compare that to any other industry where magicians don't reveal their secrets, where everything is closed source and proprietary, right? Those industries don't flourish as much. And that's because open source, truly open source, okay, allows for a worldwide community to come together and collaborate and build better and beautiful things. Sure, it might have quirks to it, but it allows so much progress versus being locked in a chain. So that's just other bits of kind of encouragement I want to push out there and why it's so important to have open source code and what we're doing as being a movement to pushing that. So, Amy, you said in the chat you had a question. Do you want to go with that? Uh, well, I mean, I feel like we've kind of, I don't know if that ship has sailed, but... <laughs> Let um, me get some cap, right? Yeah, so one thing, you know, as somebody slightly newer... Um, you know, as I was learning about databases and stuff at my first job, um, CAP came up. So I was going to see if we could discuss uh, exactly what that means. And it seems like traditionally, um, so, you know, my understanding, you can only have two. But like you were just saying prior, I feel like you had a lot of really good points because from everything that I've read, you know, there's like pretty strong opinions as to which the which two you should pick but then there is like as you push people on it people will say well you know there is like so much gray area so maybe you could talk about um you know how god approaches that and if we can actually talk about uh what the cap theorem is great question i want to strongly encourage people to not um use cap theorem in a fuzzy way because i think that leads to a lot of more black magic and bad vendors out there so yes there are some nuances to it but i think it's really really important that we keep hard and fast an established idea that you must choose two out of three um 
because that keeps the conversation clearer. And that's what we're trying to do, not to confuse people more, but to keep it clear. So let's let's demystify the black magic of cap. I'm going to use concrete examples. Gun is AP, where AP means highly available, A, and the P means partition resilient, okay? AP systems, aka gun, should not be used for banking or accounting, okay? So you can use gun for a lot of things, but here's the author of gun itself telling you gun it would be a bad solution for banking, okay? And the reason why banking is important is because... Um, you want a strongly cons consistent view of how much money people have in their bank account. The reason why that's important is so that they don't double spend. They don't go out and purchase two things at once. If I go to the 7-Eleven, let's say I only have $2 in my bank account. <laughs> I go to the 7-Eleven and I purchase a $2 slurping, okay? And then I quickly run across the street to to some other restaurant, let's say Denny's, because I know it's going to take time for the transaction at 7-Eleven to go to my bank account. Okay, I quickly run over to Denny's and I purchase a $2 um, ice cream cone or something like that. I have now spent the same $2 twice because it took time for the bank account to um, get the updates. So if you have a strongly consistent database, a centralized database that says, oh, no, you're not allowed to make that purchase until we check what the current value is in your banking account and then authorize it, then that's fantastic. Um, you don't have that Can problem. you imagine so, that online banking without the consistency? <coughs> you either have $12 or $20 in your account. <laughs> what are you talking Actually, about? They tell me that all the time. I have an actual balance and an available balance. And yeah. not to be like a real jerk about this, but have you ever heard of what it was like, you know, when there were just checks and no computer, no online banking, right? Like it existed just exactly like this. And so we took advantage of it. We floated checks around and have five check account, checking accounts open with no money in it, but it looked like there was money. It was great. I loved it. And this is where the nuance comes in, because I well, think you're actually absolutely right. The fact is that even though banking is the one, the one industry that should use strongly consistent databases, guess what? They don't, because they value the customer being able to withdraw money. And guess what? If the customer doubles withdraws or something like that, they know who did it. They're able to penalize your account. So, so yes, I'm going to say from a mathematical and academic perspective, I have to be honest, don't use gun for banking. But, <laughs> but you, can, um, you can extrapolate that. Like, So maybe it works for the banking system because at least on the consumer side, when we overspend, we overspend by a few hundred dollars, they come track us down. But like, if you're talking about, say, the trading at the New York Stock Exchange, it's an entirely different matter. Now, if you overspend, they'll just charge you a bunch of fees. That's how they make their money. <laughs> yeah, they like it's, it. It's a disincentive. Right. So, yeah. So I, it's it's kind of like I've ordered on Amazon, you know, around Christmas time, and they send me an email like three days later saying, oh, actually, you're the customer that didn't get the last of this item. Someone else did. So and, – and airlines do this. So I, I'm going to push back on your point of saying that you shouldn't use it for financial transactions. I mean even even Bitcoin – um, which of course is a little more complicated, but like it's totally possible to to do it, and it's how it is done. So I I just don't want people to get the wrong impression that like oh it's not good enough for financial, therefore it's not good enough for me. 
because I, I think that the the theory behind it, it you just find other implementations. You 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 decide that customer pain is worth X dollars, and if it costs you eight dollars to pay someone to solve a problem that takes an hour to solve in data entry, is that greater or less than you know the cost of the hardware to make it more consistent? All right, right we but went the point way is, off, but is, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Go ahead, yeah. Joe. The point is, oh, the point is that there are definitely applications you have to think through. You have to think through your application to decide: is this the right mix of the cap theorem? Right? Like, you don't want to get a notification two days later saying, "Oh, sorry, we actually didn't abort the launching of the nuclear missiles when you hit cancel." <laughs> <laughs> Consistency is important. I do want to say thank you to AJ for bringing this up, though, because I do think it is. Imp- I have to be academically honest and say that, yeah, you know, you, if you're dealing with like maybe nuclear launch codes or something very theoretically and mathematically precise, you're not going to want to do this. But I want to blow the conversation back way further on the CAP theorem to what its actual problem is that the CAP theorem is not a computer science problem, it's a physics problem. Again, like I mentioned before, in a distributed system, in a peer to peer system where there's multiple machines talking to each other, it takes time for information to travel. That is a fundamental limit of physics, okay? Thank you, Einstein. So when we look at the stars at nighttime, if you're fortunate enough to be in a city that you can actually see the stars, what we are seeing is an eventually consistent state of the universe around us. It takes hundreds of millions of light years for that that starlight to reach us. When we look out, we might not actually be, the star that we're seeing might no longer exist, okay? The problem is a physics problem. The universe itself fundamentally takes time for information to to transfer. It is fundamentally an eventually consistent system. When we try and build databases that are strongly consistent, that pretend to have a global or Newtonian view of the universe, we are literally fighting with the physics of the system. And that's why um, there's there winds up being so many problems and failure cases that Kyle Kingsbury points out. So I do think it is better to say, hey, okay, our actual problem, like AJ said, is customer satisfaction, not mathematically necessarily sound theories. Now, I'm trying to make sure you guys know that that gun underneath is. That's why I'm being academically honest, not to use it for banking. But yeah, at the end of the day, customer satisfaction is probably going to be a lot cheaper than having a perfect system. Um, So... Thank you, AJ, for bringing it up. And also, to the other point, yes, if you're dealing with mathematically precise things like nuclear bombs, then maybe you should probably uh, side more on the strongly consistent side. Amy, did that answer your question? Yes. Wonderful. Any other questions to follow up on that? Not for me. Okay. Not directly on CAP theorem, but I am curious uh, what kind of applications then can or should you be using GUN for? Yeah. So pretty much anything other than banking, but cough, cough, what AJ said. Uh, although that's a little scary for me to say. Um, so Gun is designed for collaborative web apps. I mean, that is what I was originally building. That is the so problem for like I had. Google Docs or something kind of thing. Google Google Docs is a great solution. Whether whether that's Facebook, Google Docs, Twitter, Instagram, anything that has a strong web presence. And you need to sync data between a bunch of peers who are all online wanting to see their latest, you know, Facebook addictions or uh, tweet streams. Gun basically provides that out of the box. 
you in the browser, kind of like with Firebase, you just write your app. You say, oh, when somebody writes a tweet, hit save. And that save auto-syncs it to other people that are on the network. Um, so, for instance, if your friend wants to see any updates to your tweets, they're probably subscribed to your key. And then that key can load in a document, which is your profile. And then your profile can probably have a property on it, which is tweets, which is a table of tweets. And then that table of tweets have um, tweet records in them. And those tweet records might have you know, references back to your profile or references to other tweets. So that's where Gun, I think, is really ideal. You're building a browser-based game. You're building a social network. You're building um, inventory management. You're building anything that's kind of just very online and real-time driven. Um, and we're also starting to get into a lot of IoT stuff too, which gets more into the Node.js side than necessarily the browser side. So you keep comparing it to Firebase, and I think of Firebase as more of a backend as a service as opposed to a database. Ah, yes, that is a beautiful point. So because Firebase is master-slave and Gun is master-master, when you wind up running Gun on your own infrastructure, it only takes about five minutes to get up and started, if you, uh, or less if you know Node.js and NPM. Because it is so fault-tolerant, you don't have to really worry about managing your backend, okay? Or even better yet, you can use some of the the community gun servers. They're not, don't trust them for any actual data, but they're just out there for you to prototype and play with. You can use then quote gun as a backend service with somebody's community server, and then when you are ready to move off of that and um, run gun as your own, because the core of gun is syncing syncing data, you just sync all the data off of the other server onto your server, and now you are running your own gun server. So um, I th that's a good point, because yes, Firebase is a backend as a service. Gun's goal is to make it so easy and so fault-tolerant that you just throw up a server, and it basically manages itself. Um, there's been like a Heroku gun server I've been running for two years that has handled like hacker news traffic and stuff like that. It's still running like version 1.0, which has a bajillion bugs in it. Uh, sorry, not 1.0, 0 0.1. Um, so I need to update it because if everybody goes running after and loading the server, there might be some problems. But it's been running pretty much fine for the last two years, and I haven't had to think about it. And that's in stark contrast to um, the MongoDB server that I was running that crashed in the middle of the night that I had no clue why and has now taken me like two or three years to just to figure out what's going on and then another couple of years to build a, a solution for it. All right. Well, if people want to get started with Gun or check it out, fiddle with, fiddle with it, whatever, is there a good place to go do that? Yes. I think the best place is to do the five-minute tutorial. It's an interactive five-minute tutorial right in your browser. Just go to gun.js.org slash think.html. It'll allow you to create a cliche to-do app, and it should only take you like five minutes or 15 minutes. Um, and then from there, you can start exploring the rest of the site. So gun.js.org is the is the website if you want to get more information. Um, the repo is also there. The repo is uh, my name, which is, well, my GitHub username, amark, A-M-A-R-K slash gun. So github.com slash A-M-A-R-K slash gun. Um, we have about 2,000 stars. Please 
star us. It really helps. Um, download us on NPM. There's, if you're coming from an NPM perspective, there's a little script. All you have to do is run. Um, so people can probably do it while they're listening to me. All you have to do is npm install gun cd node module slash gun node example slash http.js8080. Um, and it's that simple. So npm install gun cd node modules gun npm start should work. Okay, we'll put that in the show notes. All right. Well, um, let's go ahead and do some picks. Amy, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure, sounds good. Um, so I found this repo with a bunch of like older talks on it. And there were a couple of talks on there by someone named Dan North, who maybe people know who he is. Um, this was actually the first time that I had heard of him. Um, but he had a talk on deliberate learning that it was a short talk. And I don't know, it's kind of common sense, but it was a good reminder. So basically, he just talks about like, all these like coding causes and stuff like that that people do and um you know it's one thing like programming is like I really just like the point you made because I feel like programming is less about practicing like it's not just like a like a memorization thing that you have to do it involves like thinking and learning and so the talk is just kind of a reminder that really when you're practicing because it is important to practice you're practicing learning new things not practicing um you know just doing the same thing over and over again because that's not what we do in our day-to-day -day. uh so that's my first pick and then the second pick i can't remember if i picked this or not in the past i don't think i have um but if i did forgive me so a lot of people listen to Pandora or Spotify. There's another thing out there called 8Tracks. It's like the number 8Tracks. Um, and I'll put a link in the show notes. But I feel like it's kind of, I don't know, it's something different if you're kind of sick of like Pandora or Spotify and want to try something different. Um, this is just like some good music to run to or program to or just have on in the background. And that's it for me. Those are great points here, here, especially in learning. Yeah, like I said, I mean, it's common sense, but I feel like we hear this, um, I don't know, that like so many people say, oh, you need to practice, you need to practice, but what are we really practicing? Because programming is not like, um, you know, playing a musical instrument or something, we're just like practicing the same thing, so. Programming is by definition solving new problems, because yeah, if yeah. it's already solved, well, then you use that library or that module and you don't think about it. So, yes. so we yes. need to, yeah, we need to practice learning and exploring and things like that. All right. AJ, what are your picks? All right. So I've got, uh, I got two good things to pick today. One is, um, you know, Netflix is always on top of it. And, you know, so they, they put Pokemon uh, Indigo League up and I've been going through the first I don't know, like 100 episodes or whatever it is. Because, uh, you know, there's a whole Pokemon Go craze. It just reminds you of, you know, your childhood or maybe your adulthood or maybe your nowhood. Um, and so it's good just to go back. And, and of course, there's a lot of life lessons that you can learn from the Pokemon TV show. Like, Bye Bye Butterfree is everything that I ever needed to know about love that I didn't know that I needed to know about love. Um, and there's a couple of other episodes like that. And I also love all the little nods they give to other shows that I never caught when I was a kid, like all these little meme -y things that they do that you just may not have noticed. So get on Netflix, go watch Pokemon Indigo League, just feel that heartwarming, uh, 
sense of your childhood swell inside of you. Um, also, I am going to do a little self-pick. Um, if you got the warm fuzzies when Mark was talking about all that decentralizing the internet and 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 making information and knowledge available to the masses and and power to the people and all that stuff, then you will probably also be interested in um, Daply, which is my company. It's D A P L I E, and we now have pre-orders open for our product, which is called Cloud, and what we're doing is taking back the internet. Whereas right now, a lot of you are just just now for the first time starting to get those notices from Microsoft and from Google and from Dropbox and from other cloud services letting you know that um, if you don't pay their ransom, that they're going to delete your data because you've now reached your limit and they want you to pay for the rest of your life. Um, we believe that people should be able to own their own data. And now that we all have broadband connections and we're not on dial-up anymore, it turns out that you can do that. Um, and so uh, among among other things, uh, data storage is one of the focuses of our, our, our in-home product, cloud. Um, so check out our website and uh, pre-order. And we also have some special things in store for some of the early bird people. So enough said. I've had broadband that felt like dial-up. Joe, what are it's your okay. Picks? The point is, it's always on. Yeah. Joe, what are your picks? All right, so I got two two picks. <clears throat> uh, yesterday, of course, by the time you're listening to this, it will have been several weeks ago. Gene Wilder died, an amazing actor. So I'm going to pick Gene Wilder. Love some love his shows. Many of them. One of them was one of my favorites, Young Frankenstein. If you've never seen Young Frankenstein, take some time right now. And uh, well, not like at this exact second, since you may be driving in your car, but uh, take some time. Go watch uh, Young Frankenstein. Awesome, awesome show. Brunhilda. And my second pick. <laughs> I think you're. Uh, are you thinking of uh, Frau Brucher? Frau Brucher, that's it. Yeah. All right. So my second pick is a board game. Actually, it's a card game that I played recently called Mystic Veil. Vale. It's a deck building game. And it has a very unique mechanic where you start with a card that's basic and you slowly add things to the card by sliding things into its sleeve. It's just a really cool mechanic and it's a very fun game. It does take almost like an hour to like basically punch out the things out of the, when it comes in the box, because there's all these, there's a bunch of cards and they all have a film on them. You have to peel the film off each card and it takes forever, but it's a super cool and super fun game. So I highly recommend you check it out. Maybe pick you up a copy mystic veil. Uh, V-A-L-E. Of course, the link's in the show notes. All righty. Um, I'm going to throw a couple of picks out there. First of all, uh, since this is a JavaScript podcast, um, um, I have React Remote Comp coming up. I mentioned that. I'm probably going to be posting the sign-up for talks and things for JS Remote Comp. So if you want to speak or if you want to attend, then uh, go check those out. Uh, just jsremoteconf.com and reactremoteconf.com. Um, and lately I've just been playing a lot of uh, games on my uh, phone. And one that I've picked up lately is Super Cropsies. It's, uh, it's based on the farm, what is it? The farm game, kind of like Candy Crush, but it's a little bit different. So anyway, uh, I'm gonna pick that. I'll put, I'll put a link to it in the show notes and uh, yeah. Those are my picks. Mark, what are your picks? I just, I want to pick 
the people who are listening. I just want to encourage them again, tackle ambitious problems, solve them with an outsider's mentality, dismantle elitism and democratize it to the masses, invite others to take credit for your victories, celebrate together as a community, and haters are going to hate, so build things you care about, don't let trends peer pressure you, and understand what you do. So, have a great week until you hear your next JavaScript jabber. All right. Awesome. Thanks for coming. We'll wrap it up. Catch everyone next week.